0: evolution of technology, AI, and and how to protect against our environment. But similarly, there's also gonna be additional threats, right, that we haven't seen before. Counting ransomware is a, is, a, is a good one, right, which is kind of proliferating in Europe and now some aspects of the US. So there's gonna to continue to be those types of things that we can, that we just find out the first time, how do we deal with that?
1: From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, Their work, and its impact on the information security industry. I am so excited to kick off the first episode in our Confessions of a CISO series, where we will be featuring awesome guests sharing personal and professional career highlights in a safe space. My guest today is Andrew Obadiru. Andrew is the Chief Information Security Officer at Cobalt, And in this role, he is responsible for the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of all of Cobalt systems and data. Prior to joining us at Cobalt, Andrew was a head of information security for BBVA, USA Corporate Investment Banking, where he oversaw the creation and execution of cybersecurity strategy. Andrew has more than two decades, years in the security and technology space with a history of managing and mitigating risk across changing technologies, software, and diverse platforms. Andrew, welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you for the uh, introduction and the very kind words. I appreciate that.
1: It is my pleasure. So Andrew, I want to start at the very beginning. Tell me about yourself as a young person. Interesting. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Because here's here's why I asked a question. And I ask this of many of our podcast guests. The reason is because now you are a world-renowned cybersecurity expert. You know, but there was a time when you knew nothing about cybersecurity. And that is the case for everyone. And so I'm very curious to know about your story and your career. And of course, our careers and our work, you know, they are the same. They cannot be taken away from the stories of our lives. And so uh, I'd love to hear whatever you'd like to share with us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, Carolyn. And thank you for that question. It's interesting uh, for a variety of reasons, right? So I did not start up in technology. My Actually, my first degree is in political science, and my second degree is in public administration. Uh, so I got into technology when I first got to the state uh, close to 20 years ago. Uh, I realized very quickly that um, you know political science wasn't going to necessarily work for me here and because the platforms are very different. You know, politics in the U.S. versus politics in Nigeria, totally different ballgame. So uh, I decided to uh, take on additional courses in technology. I started off in SAP, uh, which is an enterprise resource management uh, solution, uh, I worked as a SAP, a basic security con- administrator uh, from that joined KPMG as a consultant. Uh, I think that was my first exposure to security. Uh, I was part of the advisory practice at KPMG uh, where we dealt with security and uh, risk management, compliance, the whole gimmick. Uh, so from that point on, I started to work with multiple clients, primarily in the financial s- space, uh, to help evaluate the security stack, the technology stack, vulnerabilities, pain points within their processes. Uh, I did that and ended up living, consulting to go into industry. I joined uh, Bayer Pharmaceuticals as uh, uh, Deputy Director for Compliance and Risk Management and Information Security Officers uh, a while back. So while I was at uh, There, I really started to build up my security jobs, uh, taking additional courses, going for security seminars. Uh, So over the years, I was able to now enhance uh, my security space and gradually transition. At the time, it wasn't called cybersecurity, it was just called security. So as I stayed on at Bayer, uh, we started to shift because of the regulatory environment, highly pharmaceutical outside of the banking sector. The pharmaceutical is a uh, less highly regulated industry uh, you can walk in. So uh, we're quick to jump into the cybersecurity space and implications of that. We had data centers everywhere, uh, but in Europe, I was responsible for North America, and that meant looking, uh, we had facilities in 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 in. Puerto Rico, uh, 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 Mexico, Argentina, all of that fell under my responsibility uh, from a security standpoint. So uh, we were forced to develop ways to mitigate uh, some of the risks we saw. At the time, hacking wasn't a big issue for us, but that became an issue because Bayer, as a pharmaceutical company, did uh, manufactured a lot of bed control uh, products. And there were people, they called them uh, ethical... Um, uh, I forgot that they're hackers, but not hackers for financial gain. Uh, they hack on the basis of principle or what they believe your product is doing to quote unquote society. And so uh, have-
1: like a hacktivist. hacktivist right? These exactly. people what they're, what they're, what mad they're mad at Bayer because they, they think that the Bayer. drugs are doing something exactly. bad to society. Exactly. Yeah, very exactly. interesting. So-
0: so that was my space. And then we that's how I we started the whole mitigation, threat mitigation. You know, that was where I first got exposed to potential hacking, how to mitigate against that, you know, how to anticipate efforts on their part, how do we counter what they're thinking, what they're coming with, learning from those processes. So, you know, over the years, I've kind of like built on that experience uh, to get to where I am today.
1: Yeah. Andrew. So we work together, right? And I happen to know your background quite well. I'm very familiar with your resume. And I remember meeting you for the first time. And I thought to myself, this guy has such an excellent background, right? How many people do you come across that have not only, you know, big four consulting, but also some sort of medical, pharmaceutical? and also banking and also technology. So this I thought was just fantastic, but I actually want to back it up a lot and ask you if you studied political science and public administration, why did you decide not to become a politician or a, or a, or a policymaker?
0: <laughs> that's that's interesting. So, you know, my first two degrees were in Nigeria, right? And if you are uh, a political science Fundamentally, they are still the same. The principles of governments are the same thing, right? Uh, but the politics of it is different, right? Since I moved out of Nigeria and I live here, I knew that I could not play in that political space, even though at the time I had real passion for politics because I like I to talk, I like to argue points that I believe in, but I never could really do that here for a variety of reasons. So I now sat down, I know my brother and I, we had discussed at the time, I said, where do I focus, right? Uh, you know, politics in as much as I have passion for it, but uh, the structure here is just different, right? I didn't necessarily go to school here. I have a bit of an accent. So all of that would not work in my favor if I was going to really pursue politics. So uh, then I looked at going into stock brokerage, and that was uh, what my brother did. So I kind of like, I took the series 77 exam or whatever, but I didn't just, I didn't like it too much technology I've always had a passion for because I like to fix things you know um, you know even as a kid and we get toys we rip it apart and we try to put it back together so technology I've always had some some level of affinity for for technology and curiosity around what makes things work the way they work right so I think when I looked through all of that I figured okay it's easy for me to take on additional courses uh, and then to kind of you know really Enhance my skill set within that space, so that's how I was able to move. If I had the choice, I probably would have, you know, stayed in politics. But, but when I look at the dynamic of of the country and what it would take for me to truly flourish in that space, I just knew it was an uphill battle. So at that point, I decided to reconsider my career path, and that's how I got into technology and ultimately security. Yeah.
1: Very cool. So here's another question for you because I think that. Uh, Certainly, you you began your technology career in consulting at KPMG, and I I actually see this as being a great fit for you, Andrew. You know, there is a lot of uh, evaluation, there is a lot of recommendation, uh, there's a lot of explaining and a lot of dialogue, you know, and I think these are certainly um, your skill set. Why make the change from consulting uh, to in-house to this part of industry?
0: So that's a very good question. So when I was in KPMG, I was in KPMG for a total of about nine years. And, um, you know, I got married when I was in KPMG. At the time, I enjoyed traveling. I was flying everywhere in the world, right? We had, I was still operating within the pharmaceutical space. And most pharmaceutical companies, they have, you know, locations around the globe. So I was, uh, I was the engagement manager for Pfizer and Wyeth. Uh, wide, I think they got purchased by Pfizer. So, so as the engagement manager, when we do our security review, we we'll visit all their sites globally. So every year, you know, almost the first four five years, five months of the year, I'll be traveling. I really, really enjoyed that. So I was able to rake in, not just, you know, mileage points and hotel this and hotel this. It was cool for me. I enjoyed it very well. But then my wife got pregnant. We got married, my wife got pregnant. And then the realization hit me like, geez, she's pregnant, I can't be traveling around, she's struggling at home with a kid, you know. So at that point, I started, my perspective started to change a little bit. And even though she was like, no, you know, because she was also in consulting, she was with Deloitte and Touche. Uh, she was like, she understood, and there was no pressure from her, but my recognition was, it was this is just not feasible for her to juggle what if she's she goes into labor and I'm not around how would that work so I started to reconcile within myself what how can I handle this as that conversation was going in my head uh Bear was also uh, my client at the time so a position opened up there I remember my manager at the time Matt Carter who's still at Bear I uh, said Andrew hey I have a position here. I think you would be an excellent fit for it you know and I don't know if you want to leave consulting I have to come work here I said yeah absolutely why not you know he was shocked because he thought I enjoyed it traveling and everything so well, but, you know, I was also struggling internally on a different level. Uh, so when he offered the position, he said, yes, I said, I'm absolutely interested in it. You know, I said, it would be an adjustment for me. I've never gone to one place over and over and over and over, over a period of time. I've always been used to spending one month at this client, go to the next client for two months. But this would be a total adjustment for me, living in my house every day and coming and sitting in the office. Is then to trust me. I was in consulting. I adjusted very well. It's just a point in your life when you get to that point, it just fits well. So, and he was right when I got into Bayer. I really enjoyed my time there. I ended up spending a lot of time, a lot of years at Bayer uh, before I left, uh, because my position was moved over to Dusseldorf. I actually stayed in Dusseldorf, Germany for like two months, very briefly, uh, but it wasn't uh, a thing for me. And that's why uh, I left Bayer, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for sharing these different parts of your story. Um, Certainly, I can relate. Um, I did uh, some consulting myself for a few years. uh, And I do really enjoy the travel lifestyle. You know, you stay in these nice hotels, you don't have to clean up after yourself, you get to eat amazing food and and meet amazing people. Uh, So there's a lot There's a lot of goodness, you know, in that lifestyle. Uh, But I, too, uh, decided to transition out of consulting uh, and back into, uh, you know, you could call it industry, private sector, whatever, uh, because of family. Uh, And certainly uh, in life, uh, family is and must be uh, the top priority. So that's that's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the different types of attackers. Right. So uh, you have been at Bayer, you've been at General Assembly, you've been at investment banking, you know, now you are at a cybersecurity company. And I expect that the types of individuals who want to do the hacking, they are different at each yep. place. And so I wonder uh, if you can tell me a little bit about how you think about these different demographics of hackers. Do you do you think that these, these people, do they behave differently? Do they do the same thing, but they just have a different motivation? What, what you know, because you have worked in many different industries mm-hmm. uh, with many different business models and also with different types of attackers, uh, I'm curious to know what you think about this.
0: Oh, yeah, that, that's an excellent question, Carmen, and, and that's true, too. Every industry attracted different kind of hack. Obviously, uh, some of them consistently are driven by financial gains, right? Uh, but there also some, as I explained in my, in, in my intro with the uh, situation with bear. Uh, those individuals were much more concerned about just disrupting our operations. They weren't necessarily trying to sell any data. They just wanted to derail uh, what we're doing. So their motivations were certainly different. And the determination is also different right so if you're not doing it for money uh the drive uh, the thoroughness is not there right but those people that do it for money you know as i saw when i was in the financial sector uh you know they're much more brutal they're much more you know focused and much they, they deploy all kinds of sophisticated mechanism to get through your environment so uh it's just very different so it, it, it's really what drives them, right what is their ultimate gain from that so you see all kinds of malware uh script being written today uh you know ransomware and that you can deploy and it can cause all kinds of havoc within your environment data mining etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, so for me having worked in these different industry sectors uh, the financial sector and the pharmaceutical sector pharmaceutical being primarily because of the regulatory nature of it i uh, tend to have some of the you know sophisticated defenses right in terms of investment in security and because they know they remain the biggest set of targets for for these uh, cyber criminals. So in terms of what drives them and the different type, and those people that are doing it for money, those cyber criminals that are doing it for financial gains, obviously, uh, they have proliferated the market. uh, This the last three, four, five years, to the extent that we haven't seen this before. Uh, before it was a mix of different types of attack you get, but lately it's just been mostly ransomware, DDoS attack, where and there's a financial component to it, there's a demand for XYZ, pay this, pay that. Uh, so. You know, if you take it from that perspective, uh, those people tend to be much more driven, right? And they spend a lot of investment in developing scripts that they can use to kind of compromise uh, uh, your environment. So I think from a security standpoint, those are the biggest challenge, right? How do you really mitigate against that? And I learned very early when I was in the bank that, you know, my goal is not to con- Completely stop them, right? My goal is to know when my environment is compromised so we can triage and mitigate the impact. If you focus on trying to stop them, you may never be able to stop them because they are just, there's so much time committed by them into what they want to do. And um, you sometimes you, you're lucky to get that, but other times you're just not as lucky. But I think the easier component of it, the most sophisticated, the much more, uh, uh, they, they, I think, I don't want to say easier, but I think the best thing you can do. Is to be aware of the environment so aware of it that if there's a compromise, and you would know, and if you're familiar with the trends in when your environment is compromised. So it's a step phase, right? It's a phased approach to it. You know, they compromise your environment, first your parameter security, and then another script is written and to look for a specific kind of data before the actual data mining occurs. So everything takes time to get to a point where, you know, uh, significant damage is done to your environment. So I think if you focus on being able to identify when your environment is compromised, I think you have a better opportunity, a uh, better chance of, you know, coping or mitigating that that issue than worrying so much about just prevention. prevention is not, I don't know if it's feasible for you to to completely prevent a hacking situation in today's world. I mean, these guys are just so sophisticated. But what they don't have control over is the time lag it takes. I don't think they're ever going to improve that so much. So there's always going to be a lag in there from the time your parameter security is compromised to when data mining actually occurs. So that window is where you focus in on your ability to make that detection early enough and then be able to triage and mitigate that. So I think that's been my focus rather than trying to focus so much on preventing it from Happening at all uh, to much more putting yourself in a position where you understand your environment in sufficient detail that if it, if it, if if there's a change, whether it be a viral pattern or something that is unusual about it, and then you know enough to be able to investigate that and 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 prevent any additional damage being done. You
1: know? Everyone's getting attacked. All there is no question about it, yeah. really. Um, and so you know, it's in, it's in stark contrast, actually to a philosophy uh, that I heard a lot when I was beginning in this field. Now, you know, 15, 16 years ago, uh, you know, the analogy that folks would use always is the castle analogy. You know, you keep people outside the castle walls. And actually this way of thinking was so pervasive at the organization that I worked, uh, there were individuals on the information security team and on their performance evaluations, there was a question that said, how many, how many security incidents happened this quarter? And if you did not have a security incident, then that was considered good. And that to me is actually a severe misunderstanding of the situation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I've seen this change you know, in a a few different ways over over my career. And I'm curious to know what this looks like for you as well. So one thing, for example, if we look at uh, the NIST CSF framework, this is designed around the idea that an incident is happening and and the phases of an incident. Um, You know, another thing that I see is in the 2017 version of the OWASP top 10, Uh, They introduced a a new uh, concept to the list, not a new concept, but new to the list, which is logging and monitoring. And it says, look, you know, if you find an attacker earlier, then you will be able to stop them uh, before they can cause more damage. And so I'm thrilled, actually, you know, that there is this level of people being realistic, yeah. Uh, in the industry, right? Um, and so I, I wonder if if you've seen a shift uh, over your career as well, or if you've always thought about it this way.
0: No, I think I've always, I haven't always thought of it this way. It was just a question of how do you evolve with the situation, right? Yeah, and, and you're right. My initial thought when I first started was, hey, you got to prevent everything. You got you to do that. You know, you got to fight to prevent, you know what I mean? But then at some point, I just realized, you know, you can only prevent against something you see coming to you, right? How do you, when you don't even know? I mean, there's not a amount of security defenses and it's ever changing, right? Whether it's endpoint security or whatever it is you call it, that you can put in place, right? Uh, but it's never airtight, it's nothing. Nobody's giving you any assurance that it's airtight. So I think having a mindset, mindset shift, right? That I'm not always gonna be able to catch everything that goes through this. But once it's settling, if I understand the environment enough, if you come into my living room and you shift my table a certain way, because I understand the way my living room is set up, I would know somebody shifted it, right? But if somebody has a combination key to open my door, I may never know you, in, you walked into my house already. But if I know I understand where my, t- my TV is and everything is in my house, and then you move it to a different position to gain access or whatever it is, I'm going to know automatically that somebody shifted something here. And it's just that kind of mindset that, and I'm glad that you mentioned the OWAP 2017 changes. And it was that kind of, that sort of really led to security monitoring, right? Because like when I first started, security monitoring was not a big component of. Of, of cybersecurity, it was more of like prevention. What do we do to prevent? But now the monitoring came in uh, to give you a pattern of behavior to understand uh, whether it's at the device level or the network level, Understand the behavioral patterns of everything. So if there's a shift in that behavioral pattern, that tells you something is wrong. And then you can start your investigation from that point, as against focusing on, you know, building up your endpoint intrusion, which is still important, but it can be your single of defense, right? So you have to do that as well as understand your environment enough to see if there's a shift in behavior, whether something unusual is occurring. People are moving data at all hours of the time of the day, late hours, two two o'clock in the morning, something that never that, or cause on that particular device so that should ring some kind of bell for you that something is not right here if you see a pattern of access request or change in, you know request format or, or device request or access change or password change whatever the situation is that is just different from the norm I mean, all of that should make you think twice and might want, probably want to look deeper into that situation so that has that has been my thought process that you know it's not feasible to focus so much on wanting to prevent everything but just focus on understanding your environment enough to know when there's a change and you want to be able to you know, recognize that change quickly and dig into it to understand what may have informed that change.
1: I think that's very realistic and I think that's very practical. And Andrew, now in our conversation, we've talked a little bit about different types of attackers. We talked a little bit about incidents and monitoring. I want to kind of flip and go to a different uh a different part of the CISO role, uh, which is internally, you have to make a justification. Internally, you have to ask for investment. You have to plan a program. And I'm curious to know at these different industries and these different uh, business models that you've worked in, is it the same everywhere? Do you ask for security, money, and investment the same way, um, or, or, or is it different? And how does how does it differ, uh, if it does, uh, between the industries that you've observed?
0: Oh, it's, it's very different. I mean, every industry is different. Security posture is different. Uh, what's important to them is different. What they're looking to protect is different where they are in their growth trajectory is also different so all of that certainly plays a role so if you in a startup environment uh, obviously uh, you know you're not going to try to protect everything your security budget will be tailored to what's critical to your organization uh, you're not going to be investing in you know building all kinds of uh, you know security parameters that may not be relevant to Uh, your your place, where you are in that growth trajectory, right? If you work in a pharmaceutical company or a financial institution, because of the highly regulated nature of that environment, you'll be doing a lot to, you'll be investing a whole lot more in security, not just to protect your environment, but also to meet the regulatory requirement. Uh, So if you're in an organization that is, you know, GDPR relevant, for instance, uh, your 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 investment pattern will be different, right? You have to build on, you have to be able to identify all of the data points, where your data is located, what are you doing uh, to mitigate, um, you know, data breaches, how do you deal with, right to be forgotten, requests to have my data wiped out. If you don't know where your data is, you're not going to be able to do that. So if you're not a GDPR relevant environment... Uh, you're not going to invest in those types of things. So I think uh, understanding the risk that you're faced with and uh, the critical business process that you're involved in uh, will determine you know, where your security investment will go. How do you make the case for what's important uh, to uh, to your organization? If your organization is a target uh, for ransom, ransom attack or malware attack, then you want to be able to identify that and evaluate your internal process to see if you're sufficiently protected against that if, if you can. not And then you have to now make the case. And your case will be based on the potential implication of not doing anything, right? So I think all of the different factors will drive and uh, the level of investment uh, you have to ask for from a security standpoint. So I think the first thing is to understand your industry sector, what's important to your organization, what are the crown jewels of your organization you're looking to protect uh, before you start pushing for on funding or even security initiative that require additional cost.
1: Yep. Yeah, very cool. Andrew, what what are any predictions you have for the future of this industry? For cybersecurity, what's gonna happen? What is gonna happen that is gonna be the next big thing, or what is gonna happen that's gonna be the next big problem? What what do you what do you see for the future of this industry?
0: I, I think that, that's a good question, and I've kind of struggled with that for uh, some time to figure out. You know, I think the different things, right? For me, we're going to continue to see evolution of technology, AI, and, and how to protect against our environment. But similarly, there's also going to be additional threats, right, that we haven't seen before. Counting ransomware is a, is, a, is a good one, right, which is kind of proliferating in Europe and now some aspects of the U.S. So there's going to continue to be those types of things that we can, that we just find out the first time, how do we deal with that? And the other thing also for me that I've also kind of looked at or thought of is, is this concept of, Everyone is working remotely, and a good portion of the industry sector is now remote-based. Right, that brings its own yeah. challenges. Right, uh, most organizations are not set up uh, to work. Cobalt, did, Cobalt is set up to do that. I think they've put a number of measures in place to mitigate that risk. But the organizations that really run—they don't—they're not heavy in the cloud. They still run traditional outfit. I think that's where the biggest challenge: where you log into a traditional network and do what you do and all of that. I think those people are going to continue to have to evolve their security structure to deal with those sort of challenges because you know working from home, you don't know what the remote environment is, what their network security, their, their internet structure is, how pervasive that is. Uh, so that could be a segue for them to compromise your environment. So I think that's something that most organizations are going to have to take a closer look at to really evolve how well they build their security. And then, you know, the continued reliance on AI, because every tool that I've interacted with lately, it's it, it's some kind of AI machine learning type thing. That's where the focus is. How do we look at behavioral patterns to detect uh, threat mitigation or threat patterns, right? How do we look at what has happened last year or last week to detect what would happen next week? Uh, I think that's the mindset. I think that's going to continue to be. But I think the concern for me is we are focusing so much in that at the expense of letting go of traditional good old security practices, which I think is still relevant today. I think it's a combination of both uh, for us to truly put ourselves in a position where we can protect ourselves. The idea of focusing so much on new technology, new software, new tools, and forgetting what has guided us over the years, I think it's it's a misgiving uh, if you ask me, but I think it's a combination of both, uh, practicing those good old security practices and then combining that with And new technology will be the way to go in the future for us to continue to stay ahead of, uh, you know, to the extent that we can, stay ahead of the cyber criminals. Yeah,
1: Yeah, very good stuff. So, Andrew, you know, speaking with you, uh, 30 minutes goes by very quickly. And uh, the last question I have for you today is, if the world is changing so fast and we do not know what is happening what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of not only how to keep up, but how to stay ahead of the curve, how to always be learning? What what advice do you have?
0: Well, from, from, from our users, but for our listeners perspective, I think they just need to be aware, right? Understand, because you can only manage what you know, right? So if you're in the business of protecting an environment, And you can't do that without understanding in sufficient detail what you're looking to protect, right? So I think for me, they need to invest in understanding the environment. Uh, Basic security awareness is important. So for me, I think investing in your people, uh, building some basic practices around that, uh, investing in endpoint security, just doing all of the things you need to do uh, but above all, I think it's really understanding your environment in sufficient detail. Whatever you're charged with protecting, understand that. So if there's a change in that environment, you're able to quickly identify that and kick off the, the, the mitigation process or even the incident response process. So you can mitigate the damage uh, before it gets to a point where it's significant. Awesome.
1: fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time and for chatting with me today and for sharing your story uh, and your thoughts with our listeners. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, Caroline. The pleasure is all mine. Happy to uh, be part of this podcast.
1: Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a Pentest as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.